Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I was actually on the church center app checking to make sure my registration was, was on there. Was that what you were doing? No, right now, I'm giving you permission. Parents, right now, get your phone out. Get your smartphone out. Go ahead and register for Breakaway Weekend right now. And some of you in this room are like, well, I don't have kids. We want you here too because we need people to be group leaders. We need people to be assistant group leaders. We need people who will hold the door. We need people out there with high energy. Yes, Pop, you can sign up. We need people out there who run with candy in their pockets. We want these kids to step on this campus and say one thing. This church wants me here. And you are a vital part of that. So right now, just go ahead and take care of that. I told the first service, I'd love to see 60 people sign up today. And we're on track to get a few more. This, we had a few this morning. We're on track to see them sign up. We want to see students engaged on this weekend. The material that Crosby is using, it's called the pause. I actually used it many years ago at a D-NOW where we went to Woodlands Camp over in Cleveland, took our students there. And I'm telling you, it is a very impactful small group experience that challenges kids to unplug from the messages that culture is putting in their mind. And so I'm telling you, you do not want to miss that weekend. That's why we're empowering you, the parents, grandparents, guardians, Right now, just go ahead, go to that Church Center app. And if you're going like, I don't know what you're talking about with the Church Center app. The video that we showed earlier will tell you, go to the App Store, type in Church Center, download it on your phone. It's going to ask you to like, hey, do we know you? What's the church you attend? Once you get on there, it'll text you a code. You get in, and you're in. And from there, like Shannon said, you can sign up for, for uh, classes. You can, you can uh, give online. All the things can be done from that app. So I'm challenging you today, right now, Go ahead, sign up for Breakaway Weekend, but also, church, be praying. We want to see God move in the lives of our students here, and we want to see God move in the lives of the students of our community. God has called us to be a light, not a nightlight, a light on the top of a hill, shining and you can't do that if you put it under a bushel. No. Y'all got that. Y'all are awake today. I'm loving it. You know, it's funny because um, y'all know I'm, I'm, I love movies because I love story. I love a good story. I love a good movie that moves you through a main character who goes through a struggle and comes out different on the other end. In 2023, though, there are already, I mean, we've seen some ups and we've seen some downs with some movies. According to Box Office Mojo, let me ask you, what are the top two grossing movies of 2023 thus far? And I will not go see it. I am not setting foot anywhere, and I will not buy the DVD either. I have no care or concern to watch Barbie, but yes, Barbie is number two What's number one? What's the top grossing movie of this, of this year so far? You know what I heard? I heard... <laughs> Somebody said it, though. <laughs> so, did somebody say Super Mario Brothers? That's where I heard it. You are correct. See me for the $5 I owe you at the end of service. Together, those movies have made almost three 
billion dollars together. Now, what that tells me, it's interesting because I like to analyze this. Why do you think those two movies are so popular? Well, if you're an 80s kid like myself, you rewind the tape to the mid-80s and you went to the store and you bought yourself the first Nintendo with a four by four and a half by five inch cartridge that to make it work, you had to blow in it to make it go. And if you're not my generation, your parents watched you as you tried to beat all eight levels of Super Mario Brothers. Am I right or wrong? And what did we do as parents? We passed it on to the next generation. A little bit of nostalgia, right? So almost everybody in this room at least knows who Super Mario Brothers is and is living in that. Now, Barbie. Barbie came along in 1959. So if you were born in the 50s, which I'm, I'm doing the math in my head, which is if you were born in the 50s or after, is about 80 to 85% of you, there are four generations that have enjoyed Barbie dolls. So it's no wonder when my daughter and I went to see Haunted Mansion a few weeks ago that we saw a grandmother, her daughter, her daughter, and a grandchild walking in with pink on. I didn't go see Barbie. Did I tell you I'm not going to see Barbie? The Little Mermaid was number seven. Even though it, it, it financially was a flop for Disney, it tells us the story that nostalgia is a powerful motivator. In fact, if you watch Netflix, let me, let me show you another example. How many of you have watched Cobra Kai? Come on, be honest. You've watched Cobra Kai. What movie is Cobra Kai based on? Karate Kid, 1984. Daniel LaRusso moves from New Jersey to Los Angeles with his mom, right? He shows up, new kid in new school, wants to show himself, you know, he's kind of, co- let's just be honest, he is cocky. He's a little arrogant, but he meets up with an obstacle, He meets up with a group of kids who know karate. And he finds himself in a situation, unexpectedly, being bullied. And so, in the midst of that, he, he, uh, he, he, again, I think he is a little cocky, a little arrogant. He gets into some trouble with him. And a guy by the name of Mr. Miyagi shows up. Now, Mr. Miyagi is the tenant, or not a tenant, he's kind of the supervisor, the, the maintenance man of his apartment complex. And he goes to Mr. Miyagi and asks him to train him because he wants to learn to be able to defend himself. And and again, this is nostalgic because I believe that the success of Cobra Kai on Netflix is because of nostalgia. This idea that we look back at stories where we've been through and draw principles that we can live on in the present. But what he gets from Mr. Miyagi is not what he expects. He shows up, he's ready to go, and Mr. Miyagi's front yard is full of cars, classic cars. And he walks up to Mr. Miyagi, and what does Mr. Miyagi put in his hand? A wet sponge. And he says to him, I say you do, no questions. And so he says, I, you wash all cars and wax. Wax on with the right hand. Wax off with the left hand. Come on, y'all say it with me. Breathe in, breathe out. And so he goes off and works till it's dark. Later he comes back again and he finds Mr. Miyagi nailing some boards to to the deck. Let's just call it that. It's it's the Japanese um, 
architecture in the backyard, and he walks up and he grabs these two pads. He says, what are these, some kind of bongos? Uh, oh, Japanese sanding pads. He says, you sand. <laughs> Left the circles, right the circles, sand the floor. Breathe in, breathe out. So he sets off, he said, set all the floors. And there's a lot of them. So the third scene comes in, and you find him this time, Mr. Miyagi's repairing his fence, and he comes up and he says, accomplished paint fence. It's all in the wrist. Up, down, long strokes, small board with left hand, big board with right hand. And ready? Breathe in, breathe out. So the fourth scene, he shows up, and it's a little bit after daybreak, and he goes up to the front, and there's a bunch of cans of paint. And on the door, there's a sign. Paint house, not up, down, but side to side, half with left, half with right. And of course, Daniel is getting exacerbated by this point. He's angry. He feels like he's being used, and he hasn't learned any karate yet. So that night, Mr. Miyagi returns to find an aggravated Daniel. Because Daniel's aggravated because as Mr. Miyagi walks up, in one hand, he's got a stringer full of fish and a fishing rod. He's like... Yo, if you'd have told me, I'd have gone fishing with you. And he feels like his work is for nothing. It's wasted time, wasted effort. And for what? He's got sore muscles, can't move his arm. All the while, he discovers that his sensei, his teacher, has gone off to fish. Isn't that true for a lot of us in our lives? God's taking us through these things in life. And we look up and go, dude, what's up? Why are you letting me go through this? You know, I asked the question last week, I asked it again. People say, how is it that a good God can let bad things happen? The better question is, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Don't you know how good I am? Don't you know how faithful I am? And you're asking me to do what? Sometimes God asks us to do some really crazy things that we don't see the point of what he's asking us to do. And like Solomon, we say, I have seen all of the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. It's kind of like chasing a preschooler around for five hours a day. You just kind of got raise your hand and go, I-, I don't know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Life gets hard. You strive hard. You work your fingers to the bone. In fact, I can't, I don't remember the name of the song, but there's a young man who's made it very popular right now because he wrote a a song about the men north of Virginia. Y'all know the song I'm talking about? You know why it's so popular right now? He's resonating with the suffering of people. Whether he's right or wrong is immaterial. He's resonating with the suffering of people. And you and I are finding ourselves constantly in situations that are hard, and God's asking us to do some really crazy stuff. In fact, Paul would write in Romans 8, 18 through 19, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not not worthy to compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. In other words, there's this anxious longing. Why? Because, as he says, the longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We are under the weight of the curse. We are under the weight of the fall of humanity. This world is under the weight of sin, and it longs for the redemption 
of the sons of God. In fact, think of it like this. We strive as the weeds and the briars of the curse constantly grab, scratch, and cut our legs. That's the striving we experience. But God's got bigger plans than that. God is sovereign over this this world and sovereign over this universe. As we talked about last week with Job, he is not caught unaware by the suffering that you're experiencing. And even though we may point our finger at God and say, God, if you give me an audience, I can plead my case. God has you exactly where he wants you to be. He's working something in your life. And the challenge for you and me is that in my suffering, will I choose to obey God no matter what? Say obey. When you were saved, if you're saved, God put his spirit inside of you. New covenant, he would cause you to obey his commands. Is that not what the Bible says? Yes or no? Ezekiel 36, 26, 27. So on our own accord, we don't have the ability, the knowledge, or the power to obey God fully. But when the Spirit of God does come into my life, there is something that is moving me toward obedience. God's plan is for you and I to obey Him, to be faithful to Him, to be in covenant with Him. And He's calling you and me to obey even in unexpected circumstance. That's why God delights in the foolishness of preaching. Because it doesn't make sense. Y'all know how many times I stand up here and I go home and I go, what in the world did I say today? It's foolishness to the world. He calls us to die to ourselves in order to live. He calls us to give, not to take. He, He calls us to sacrifice for others. He wants us to be willing to love and forgive, to turn the other cheek, even when everything in your flesh and culture is saying no. That's the God we're serving. But God asks for us to do strange in the unexpected. God is calling you and I to radical obedience even when it doesn't make sense. Some of you will know what it's like to sit your family down and say, guys, I got to tell you something. God's called me to go X, Y, or Z. Some of you have experienced that. God's opened up this opportunity for me to take a job in Montreal. God's opened up this door for me to go and do this. Sometimes you go like, that's so crazy. That's so weird. Why in the world would God call me out of my comfortability? That's exactly why he calls us out of comfortability. Because when you and I get comfortable, we get rigid. We're unmoldable and God wants to move us. And I don't know any other story that kind of proclaims this than the story of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. So if you have your Bible or your device, I want you to go to 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, the book of Kings, we divide it into 1 Kings and 2 Kings. But basically, this is following 1 and 2 Samuel, which is the story of Samuel and David. And now we're getting into Kings, where it's going to talk about the kings of Israel and Judah. At the beginning of the book of 1 Kings, David is king, and Solomon is about to take his place. And under Solomon, the kingdom expands and grows. We get to chapter 11, chapter 12. His son, Rehoboam, takes over, and the kingdom splits. 
And it splits into 10 tribes and two tribes. Judah and Benjamin basically are still under the Davidic lineage where the other 10 tribes go off. We call that the Northern Kingdom if you're reading any kind of, of commentaries or stuff. We call that the Northern Kingdom because it was to the north. Those kings from the very beginning never follow the Lord. From the beginning, those kings begin to be described as evil. And then you get Ahab. Ahab, one of the, one of the most ruthless ru- rulers in, in, in the, the, the dynasty of the northern kingdom. But part of that was because of his wife, Jezebel. Jezebel was a Baal worshiper, B-A-A-L, Lord of the Flies, whatever, whatever you want to call him. But the worship of Baal was debaucherous. There's kids in the room, and I will not explain, but it was, it was very, I believe, it created a system where they could meet their own needs. They didn't really care about their gods. So the message of kings is that even though the kings are turning their heart away from God, away from the covenant, there is still a God in Israel, and God raises up the prophet Elijah. And 1 Kings kind of follows Elijah's pursuits and his, and his conflict between Ahab, Jezebel, and he. You got, you got Elijah on, on, the, on Mount Carmel in this tug of war, and, and God comes down and consumes that sacrifice that had been soaked with water. And as we referenced last week, but then you see uh, Elijah running for his life. But along with that running, there's a, there's a young prophet by the name of Elisha. And when you get to the beginning of 2 Kings, you, you're beginning to see the transition. Uh, Elijah is taken up into heaven. In chapter 3, though, we realize that now Ahab's gone. He dies at the end of 1 Kings. And his son uh, Jehoram has taken over the kingdom. Now, even though the Bible says he wasn't as bad as his parents, he's still pretty bad. He tore down the altars to Baal, but he didn't pledge allegiance to Yahweh. In fact, in chapter 3, you, you read this story about where the northern kingdom and Judah, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram, kind of make this allegiance to go and fight the Edomites. But Elisha tells him, I'm not going to give you victory because of you, Jehoram. I'm going to give you victory because of Jehoshaphat. So we already see that Jehoram... Number one, he's not on God's good list. But in no way does he represent the covenant of God to his people. Then in chapter 4, though, you still get a little bit of this idea. Okay, well, if the leaders aren't following, what are the people doing? So you get these, this list of no-name people. Chapter 4, you get this story about a, widow, a, pro- a prophet widow who has two kids and she's, she's indebted. And they're coming to take her kids, to take them into slavery for her to pay her debt. And Elisha asked, well, do you have any, anything in your house? And she has some oil. And miraculously, that oil multiplies enough to where she can sell it. She pays her debt and saves her children. Or then you get the story of the Shunammite woman who is barren. And her husband is beyond childbearing years. And God miraculously brings forth a child through this woman. That yet after that child is born, that child dies. And they send for Elisha, and Elisha comes, and he raises this child. This child is raised back from the dead. 
It's, it's incredible. And you see, you see this idea of the, of, of the miracle of the poisonous stew and how he makes it able to eat. And the point of that is, is you've got these no-name people in Israel believing in God when the leaders aren't believing in God. They find themselves in unexpected circumstances, yet their heart was toward faithfulness in God. And folks, let me tell you something. We can come in here and we can sing songs. We can hug each other's necks. I can tell you how much I love you. Your obedience and faithfulness to God is measured in your commitment and obedience. Your faith, your commitment to the Lord is measured in your obedience. Again, what is the plan of God? to put? Why did he put his spirit inside of you? To cause you to obey his commandments. When you and I find ourselves in unexpected circumstances, the problem is, is the first thing that goes out the door usually is our obedience. We carry the weight of that burden so long, we thought, you know what, I'm not even going to go to church anymore. Church is irrelevant because God won't take me out of this situation. God calls this in my life, and you turn your back on the Lord. How many warnings did we read in the book of Hebrews that talked about don't stray away? Listen to the word. We heard it over and over again, right? And it's no different. So I'm going to pick up. In fact, what I want to do for those that are following me in the slides, I, I, I don't want to read the entire passage. I want to skip down to verse 11. So if you'll follow me, follow with me in first, Second Kings chapter 5, verse number 11. Elisha has sent a message to him. Elisha didn't even go out to meet Naaman. Naaman has come to him because Naaman is a captain of the guard of an enemy nation, the Arameans. And I'm going to set up the story in just a minute. But he comes to Elisha to be cured of leprosy. This mighty warrior has a disease that's either going to cost him his limbs or maybe cost him his life. And he doesn't like what Naaman or what Elisha tells him to do. So in verse 11, he says, Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hands all over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Amen. This is an enemy. Naaman is an Aramean. He doesn't like Israel. He doesn't want anything to do with Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? How many of you guys have ever bargained with God when God has said, I need you to do this? God, can I rather do this? He says, so he turned and he went away in a rage. He didn't just leave. He didn't go pout. He was, he was angry. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And on that seventh dip, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let's pray. Father, as we dig into your word for just a few moments, as we examine what you have said, let it examine us. Lord, take this word and look over our hearts. Many of us in this room, we're struggling, Lord. We are really struggling. We have allowed our circumstances to define us, the unexpected things that have happened. But God, today I pray that we would find victory over those circumstances in you and you alone, in Jesus' name.
Amen. So let me go ahead and just tell you what's going to happen. I want to go down through this passage, and I want to show some keys that I think are important for us to remain obedient to the Lord in unexpected circumstances. And like I just prayed a few minutes ago, some of you in this room, you're in some hard situations. And I'm here to tell you, you know what? That stinks. I can't imagine what's going on in your life. And I do not want to diminish nor take away the pain that you're experiencing. That's, that's not my goal. My goal isn't to shame you for the things that you're feeling. My goal is to tell you this. You can't bear that burden alone. At the end of this message, I'm going to invite you to come. I'm going to have prayer partners all over this altar today. Pastoral staff will be down here. Some other people will be down here. And I want you to take an opportunity to come to this, to this altar and let somebody pray for you. They don't have to know your story. They don't, have, know, they, don't, they don't have to know what's going on. If you feel like sharing it, share it. But Maybe you just need to come down and say, you know what, I can't tell you everything. I just need somebody to pray with me. Now, you may leave today and the problem be just as ever-present as it has been. But maybe it might encourage you to keep on going. Because I can tell you what, these people that are going to pray for us today, that are going to intercede, will remember your face. And they will be praying from you from this day forward. So I'm going ahead and telling you, the invitation is for intercession. And so I want you to pick up with me in this story. I want to back up to uh, verse number one and kind of lay this out and give you the first point, which says this. No faith is too small to see great things. No faith is too small to see great things. When you look at verse number one, we, we, we learn how highly respected this man Naaman was. He was, I, I believe he was just a man of men. He was a valiant warrior, but the Bible says he was also a leper. It says, now the Arameans had gone into, in, out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And so the victories that, that God had given the Arameans involved the taking of an innocent young girl. When I talked to you and told you we were going to talk about Naaman today, did any of you go, oh, yeah, that's that story about that little girl who was kidnapped? Did any of you think about the little girl? Did, I mean, if you, if you know the story well, did you, did you think about the little slave girl? Because that's what she's become. I mean, it had to be pretty close. I mean, I kind of think that Naaman was the one, or at least one of his people were the one who kidnapped that little girl because now she's serving Naaman's wife. You know, you and I have a problem. The problem that we have is victimization. You see, this little slave girl could have turned the narrative around. She could have said, well, by golly, I ain't doing jack for him. They stole me from my family. They stole me from my home. I'm the victim here. Do you know what happens when you allow a situation to make you a victimization, to give you victimization, to, to give you a victim mentality? You let the victim situation become your identity. You won't actually want to stay a victim because some way, somehow it gives you power. It gives you attention. Let, let me read to you what one author says about victimization. He says, if you have a victim mentality, you will see your entire life through this perspective that things constantly happen to you. Oh, woe is me. 
Victimization is thus a combination of seeing most of the things in your life as negative, beyond your control, as something you should be given sympathy for experiencing because you deserve better. Remember what I said earlier. The question isn't good God, bad things. It's why are you letting this happen to me? You know why, that, you know why that's a problem for us? Because most of us really do think we're good people. Let me say that again. I, I don't, most of us think that we are really good people. Can I ask you what Scripture teaches about you and me? Let me, just use, let me use Joe's words. He just used it. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. And in our Christian arrogance, somehow we think that we're better than other people. So we begin to think, well, God, you owe me something, and you've allowed this to happen to me with, with no justification. The only person I ever read in the Bible that had something happen to him with no justification was Job, and we studied that last week. And even Job had to say, God, I repent in sackcloth and ashes because I did not have your perspective. Author goes on to say, by believing that you have no power in your situation, then you have no fault or no responsibility. The difference between having something happen to you as a victim and having a victim mentality is you park your camper here and this is what you live by. And you sit in that and you become rigid. I learned recently this, and this is just a phrase that, that I came up with. When you live in insecurity and a lack of confidence, you actually are not more moldable, you're actually more rigid. What do I mean by that? Because you begin to live in this victim mentality. I've got, I know people in my family and friends that live in a victim mentality that if you were to take the situation away from them, they feel depowered. They actually are living in insecurity. And when you live in insecurity, you become rigid. You're not moldable. Well, then where does our security come from? I'm glad you asked that. Because in ourselves, there's nothing we can do about our situations. In ourselves, we can't save ourselves. But Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died for your sins so that your sins could be forgiven so that you could take on a new person, a new personality. You are forgiven. You are loved by God. You are a child of God now. Your identity is different. Therefore, my security isn't in me. It's in Jesus. So when it says that no faith is too small to see great things, what God wants to do is transition your situation and make him the object of your faith. This young slave girl had more faith than the man who was in charge of the armies of the Arameans. This young slave girl who was so insignificant that we don't even know her name had more faith than Jehoram or anyone in his court. This young girl had faith in God. It wasn't that she had like 10 units of faith. Her faith had an object, Yahweh, and she remained faithful to him. And she could have told Naaman to stick it, but she didn't. She could have celebrated his leprosy, but she didn't. She went to her mistress and said, you know what, if he knew the, if he knew the prophet... She glorified God in the midst of her situation. So I challenge to us today is to consider our situation. Our situation is not a justification to stop obeying the Lord. 
Because when I stop obeying the Lord, I cut off the life flow of what God is trying to do in my life. In Mark chapter 9, there's a young man who is demon-possessed. And as his father said from his childhood, he's been throwing himself into fire. And this demon's tried to destroy him. He said, but if you can do anything, if you can do anything, take pity on us. And what did Jesus say? Okay, bro. No, that's not what he said. He said, if you can? What was this question driving there? It wasn't, do you have 10 units of faith that there'll be enough for me to exchange and I'll take the demon out of your son? No, what he was saying is, do you know who you're talking to? I am the object of your faith. I am the one who can do the impossible because he says all things are possible to him who believes. Believes what? I believe when I get in my car today and stick the key in the ignition, it's going to start. Does that mean that I'm putting my faith and trust in my keys? Sometimes we do. Jesus is challenging this man to say, look, I am he who can do anything. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Listen, I'm I'm begging you this morning. Some of you have come in here and the weight you're carrying is too much for you to bear. Don't walk out of here today carrying that weight on your back anymore. Symbolically, come down to this altar in just a little bit and let somebody pray with you and to take that burden on themselves too. That's what we're called to do as a church. Bear one another's burdens and whatever that it is that God's got you in I guarantee you there's a plan that at the end of that 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 process God will be glorified and you will be better for it point number two no requirement from God is too strange to see him act no requirement from God is too strange to see him act as as Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty two through 24 if you have the have faith you can say to this mountain to be cast and it would be gone But again, wait a minute, what did I just say faith was? It wasn't about how many units of faith you have. It's about the object of your faith. How can a mountain be moved from one place to another? By the hand of God, not your prayer. Not your ability, because you can't move mountains. Who moves mountains? Who quakes the earth? Who sends the rain? Who spins the, the earth in its rotation? Who keeps its hands on the creation and causes all things to be? Who gives you the breath that you have? So therefore, no requirement, no ask from God is too strange that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't act. Warren Worsby says this about this general. He says, this Syrian general, to show such a deference to a Jewish servant, was certainly an indication that God was bringing about change in his heart. Naaman had no reason to listen to this young girl. So what does he do? He goes to his king, Ben-Hadad. And he asks the king, king, listen, there's somebody in Israel that possibly can take my leprosy away. Now, you're the king. Here's the captain of your guard. You're like, dude, I need my captain well. He's a valiant warrior, a man of men, and he's got a disease that's debilitating him. So what does the king do? He raises up all the money he needs to raise up. Ten changes of clothes? That was a big deal back then. A very big deal. Because now you've got Naaman in his chariot and his men, and they're going and crossing the Israeli border, which just the last time he was there, he kidnapped somebody. 
Come on, guys. Y'all, y'all see in the context here? He's walking into enemy territory, but he's so desperate to see God move, he doesn't care what the obstacle is. He could have been shot on sight. But he knew that no requirement from God is too strange to see God act. And so he goes. And so he brings that letter to the king of Israel who isn't following the Lord and says, am I God? Notice he says, am I, am, am I God? If he was in covenant relationship, what should the word be there? In your Bible, I think you guys know this, when you see the word L-O-R-D and the O-R-D are in capital letters, that is Yahweh, that is God's covenant name. But, but the king doesn't refer to them to him in his covenant name. In fact, we don't even hear Jehoram mentioned. He's just the king of Israel. He now has become as much a no-name as anyone else. These other players, these other people who have covenant fidelity are rising up because they're showing that there still is a God in Israel. And when you and I, in our unexpected circumstances, commit to obeying the Lord no matter what, the world will see God working in us. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you love one another. And what does he say? By this, loving one another, the whole world will know you are my, do y'all know that next word? Say it again. Say it one more, say it with gusto. Disciples, the whole world will know you are my disciples if you have love for one Another. I'm going to tell you what, in this day and time, it's a miracle of God for us to love one another. We let so many things divide us and come between us, and no one in the flesh does love perfect, but we know the one who is perfect love. So no requirement from God should be too strange. Think about Jesus in the garden praying, drops of blood, and he says, Lord, if you would, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. He laid down his pride because the third point, the only thing that stands in the way of you and obedience to God is your pride. No pride is too substantial that God can't humble. What we see in the text is he gets mad. He goes to Elisha's house, but Elisha, because he is superior to this man, he's the man of God. If you want to see, see the proof of that, go back to chapter one and read chapter one of Second Kings. It's weird. You talk about weird things? Look back at chapter 1. King sends 50 men and their leader to come to inquire of the man of God, say, you need to come down to see the king. And the prophet says, well, if I'm the man of God, then let fire come down and consume all of you. And he did. 51 people died right there on the spot. So the king sends another 50 and another leader, and they come, and he says, well, if I'm the man of God, then let fire come from heaven and consume all of you. The third one came and he dropped to his knees and said, okay, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Stop. I don't want to be toast. I'm saying please. God's serious. God is serious about our pride. And the only thing that's standing between us and obe- obeying God is our pride. In fact, if you look back at the text in verse number 11, it says, but Naaman was furious. So wait a minute. How is that any different than the way you and I react sometimes when we see what God is doing and we don't like it? God's not doing what I expected. And then he asks me to do something weird, outlandish, 
Something that would cost me something? Look at what it, it reveals about Naaman's expectations. He's saying, I thought he was just going to come out and kind of wave a magic wand and I'd be done. No, no, no sacrifice on Naaman's part. But remember, God's moving on Naaman's heart. He'd already humbled enough where he's going to go and at least ascertain the man of God. But God's doing something in his life. What he's doing is he's chiseling away his pride. A step at a time. Digging down deep. You see, what happens is you, in our lives, again, if we're living in a victimization mentality, we actually are living in a moment of pride. Don't take my, don't take my pain from me. It's mine. It makes me who I am. Well, if you want to live in chains and shackles, go ahead. God wants you to free you from that, free you from that weight. Today on the Bible app, it's interesting because last week we quote, quoted this verse, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. But he may not exalt you the way you think you need to be exalted. We think that means he's going to give me prestige and power and authority, position. That's not what that verse is saying. The point of the verse is to humble yourself. And when you humble yourself in the right way, it leads me to a place where I can find obedience even in my unexpected circumstances. I'm going to go ahead and give you the blanks. You ready? Get ready to write. Number four is no circumstance is too impossible that God can't overcome. God uses another no name in the text, one of the servants of Naaman, to say, Father, if he'd have asked you to go to Curahee Mountain and take two red flags and start waving them like this, you would have done it because that's really weird too. But what he has said to you is go and dip in a muddy river seven times. In this, gen, in this captain's mind, he can't imagine going to something dirty to make him clean. But again, that's why there's so many oxymorons in text. I must die to live. I must decrease so he can increase. I must dip in a dirty river seven times. No circumstance is too impossible that God can't overcome. Why? Because in our unexpected, God asks for the unexpected. In our unexpected, God asks for the unexpected. And what that leads me to is to obey God in unexpected circumstances. There's, no, there's nothing like, wow, that's a great point in this outline. It's actually just very straightforward. The keys here, faith, God's requirement, dying to my pride, and not allowing my circumstances to define who I am leads me to a place where God can do unexpected things in my unexpected circumstance. And so Naaman goes down, and he dips seven times. One, two, three, four, five. You know, by this point, he probably had to stand up and maybe he decided to hold his nose. Maybe one of those dips, he got a jet of water up his nose. I don't know. His clothes are all nasty. He's dripping wet. I don't know if water made his sores hurt worse. I don't know. Six, and he looks up. He doesn't see any change. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us if the dipping made a progressive change. We don't know. All we know is that on the seventh dip, on the seventh time going down, that's when he stood up and his skin was as clean as a little child. 
Man, my skin's starting to look kind of kind of old. I got a couple of liver spots on my hands, if you know what those are. Some of you look in a mirror every day and you start seeing the sag hang from your chin. You see the bags under your eyes. You see the hair starting to get a little thinner on top. His skin was like that of a brand new child. He took his focus off his circumstances and watch what is revealed in verse number 15. He says in verse 15, when he returned to the man of God, Elisha, with all of his company, he came and stood before him and he said, behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. No matter what the leadership's doing or not doing, no matter what culture is doing or not doing, this bad situation that I find myself in, I may not can explain why it's happening. It may have something to do with my sin. It may not have anything to do with my sin. It may have to do with testing. It may have to do with discipline. But guys, listen to me. Whatever situation that you're in, commit to obeying God no matter what so you can see God do great things in your life. When you return to that story of Mr. Miyagi, I'm going to scroll down so I can, can, can kind of put a bow on this box. There he is, standing in front of Mr. Miyagi after he's fussed at him for waxing the car, sanding the floor, painting the fence, painting the house, and he can't see any connection to it. And Mr. Miyagi says something I think we need to hear. He says, not everything is as seen. And so he says, show me wax on, wax off. And Daniel starts to stoop down. He's like, stand up. Now, don't show me, show me. And he goes, He's, he, he's, so, he's so arrogant in that moment. He said, no, show me. And he throws his hand and he blocks. And he throws his hand and he blocks. And then he says, show me, show me sand the floor. Show me, he goes through each one. Show me paint the fence. He goes through all of them. But in just a, chore, a beautiful choreographed moment, what he realized is that all along, the suffering, the disappointment, all the things that he endured brought him to that moment where now he was ready to become a fighter. In whatever situation you find yourself in right now, God is preparing you to be a fighter. God may not bring the blessing you're expecting because you actually may be the blessing he's producing. There's a book called The Wounded Healer. And the title says it all, that in your woundedness, in your suffering, in your struggles, God actually may make you the one who becomes the blessing for somebody else. You're sitting there expecting that God's going to do this and do that, and this is my expectation. He's going to come and wave his hand over me, and everything's going to be better. But what if it's God preparing you for something magnificent that you can't even imagine? What if you yielded to that? You know, I remember and recalled when I was sharing last week about my surgery and the struggle that I went through. It was hard laying in the floor night after night in pain and for me, it was a lot of pain. But you know, I forgot something when I was in that process, and that was this, that there is actually other people who had been through the same thing. And one of those was a dear friend of mine. His name's Dale. I had forgotten. I wasn't, I wasn't at church with Dale anymore. He was a, uh, somebody I served on staff with. He's old enough to be my father. But he had gone through the same surgery that I, had got, I was about to go through, and I had forgotten. But let me, let me tell you, let me tell you about this man's integrity and this man's love. 
I had my surgery on April 29th, 2015. It's on my son's birthday. I was tore up. I had bought him this magnificent Lego set. And I couldn't wait to build it with him. And I couldn't. I couldn't lift my right arm. I was so sad. We went to the, we went to the hospital. And all I'm thinking in my mind is I want to get this over with. I want to get this over with. Wasn't thinking about the pain that my wife was going through. Because it was the first time she had set foot back in that hospital. Since her mom had died the year before. Here's the beautiful thing. And this is, this is the point of this story. To not negate your suffering because you may be a blessing to somebody else. When I woke up, from what I can remember, I remember my wife saying, you won't believe who showed up and sat with me during your surgery. I said, who? She said, Dale. Somebody had been there and had done that. Didn't offer any, any really wisdom or anything of that nature. He just sat with her because he had been through the same suffering. Folks, God may be taking your obedience through your circumstances and building you up to be a blessing to somebody else. And when we embrace that, we embrace what we're going through and ask God, God, teach me, show me, mold me. Yes, I think God will listen to your prayer when you say, God, I can't handle this. Get me out of this. But it may be that God needs you to pray, Lord, that whatever happens. My faith is in you, not my circumstances. My faith is in you to go with me through this journey, and my praise will be on there in the blessing and in the subtraction, and in that God can use you like you never can dream about. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and as you're standing, I'm going to invite those people that I had invited. They were part of our journey to the cross team I want to invite them to come, and I want them to be standing. They're going to be standing down here in front of the pews in the front. You don't have to explain to them what your need is this morning. They know by you moving and coming that something's weighing on your heart. But as we sing this song, don't stand back there and wallow in that pain. Come and share it with somebody. This is a safe place. Y'all hear me? This is a safe place. I can tell you we're watching And if we perceive there's anything not safe, we'll address that. We want to create a safe place where hurting people can come and be ministered to. And so, Father, as we get ready to go into this time of invitation, would you move on our hearts? Would you give us liberty? Would you give us freedom to move as you would speak to us this day? In Jesus' name, amen.